0: or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code Podcast30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot.
1: My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Mr. Sam Stovall, who I'm sure a lot of you have seen over the years doing the media runs, has some phenomenal research. Sam, go in and unmute yourself, introduce yourself here to the audience. Who are you? How did you get involved, interested in markets, and what are you doing currently?
2: Hey, Michael. Well, good to talk to you, and thanks for inviting me. Well, I guess the uh, it runs in the family. My grandfather was one of the first employees of Reynolds & Company that later became Dean Witter Reynolds, starting in Louisville, Kentucky back in 1931. My father uh, has been on Wall Street since 1953, and I've been working on Wall Street since joining Argus Research in 1986. So I was at Standard & Poor's for about 27-plus years. And then when S&P decided to sell its equity research division, I have now been at CFRA, which bought it, and we continue the independent equity research approach.
1: Did you always know that you wanted to be in the investment industry, just seeing your your father, your grandfather, or did you ever consider a different uh, profession?
2: I actually considered a different different profession. I was gonna be a social studies teacher. Uh, Jokingly, I say I was gonna coach football, teach social studies, and grow a potbelly. and I can only say I've accomplished one of those goals but my father had said to me while I was going through Muhlenberg College in Allentown, PA, going for my teaching certificate, he said, do me a favor and take some business and computer courses because with so many of the baby boomers already having gone through the school system, many of these systems will be shrinking, not expanding. And he was absolutely right. So my first job was selling and installing computer timesharing systems. And slowly worked my way into Wall Street after getting my m b a in finance from n y u how did
1: your um your grandfather and father look at markets and how did you form your own unique take on things? I mean you know market knowledge obviously evolves over time, and history as an interesting way of of uh changing one's perspective as you're living in it
2: sure absolutely well, unfortunately, I never met my grandfather. he passed away before I was born, but I was given his name so i carry that with me every day my father was pretty much a fundamental analyst he was a um, in wall street week with louis rothkaiser part of the ha- louis's hall of fame what pop did was amazing cuz he did it all before computers he basically did what we he called a concent- concentric circle approach where you know the outside story let's say california needs a lot more energy they don't have enough utilities. Okay, well, the inner circle is, though well, then they have to build these utilities. And then the more concentrated circle is, well, what companies do the building of these utilities? So a company like Jacobs Engineering would have been one back when California needed more Electricity, more utilities, etc, they would be the ones to do the building of it, etc, so you know he would just take a very logical uh, approach to things, and as a result was very frequently rewarded by Lewis as being among the the three best stock pickers year in and year out. What I did, taking it one step further was because I did have the luxury of a computer and also you know, like I like to read what others have done in the past. I read the book What Works on Wall Street by James O'Shaughnessy and gravitated toward the momentum side of things. I'm more visual than I, than I am uh, f- fundamental. And so, also knowing that I want to extract my emotions from the equation, uh, a lot of what I did ended up r- focusing on either seasonality momentum or correlation. And I wrote about seven different strategies in my book, The Seven Rules of Wall Street, which still work today. We are in a, a good seasonal period right now, uh, as defined by the Stock Traders' Almanac, calling it the, the six best six months of the year, but come the end of April, when some might say sell in May and go away, I say rotate, don't retreat, and gravitate toward the more defensive areas because they tend to hold up better in the more challenging May through October period.
1: Yeah, and I had uh, Jeffrey Hirsch on one of these Twitter spaces, I want to say a month or so ago. He, he used the line, which was interesting to me. He said, I'm afraid I'm not bullish enough, uh, which I think is a good transition to your thoughts on this year. Um, I will tell you candidly, I see still a tremendous amount of negativity on Twitter, in you know, my conversations with advisors. I'm not sure if it's a similar experience for you when you talk to, to clients in different relationships, but where are we in the cycle for stocks? Is, is there a, are the concerns around the bear market continuing overblown, or are we in a secular move here higher?
2: Well, I think that there's certainly a reason for investors to remain concerned, because Every time that we have had the the CPI reach the 6% level or higher since 1947, we have fallen into a bear market with a recession. Bear markets with recessions have fallen further and lasted longer than bears without recessions. On average, they've lasted 15 months and have fallen 35%. This bear market lasted nine months and fell 25% doesn't mean that uh, this bottom could not have been placed uh, on October 12th because there were four other bear markets with recessions that only declined in the mid-20% area. But certainly, I think a lot of technicians are expecting that we probably will at least retest the 3,500 level, and some are saying we should be going a bit lower. But history says, no, actually, we're sort of in the sweet spot. From October 31 of midterm election years through October 31 of the year after, the market was up 21% on average with dividends reinvested and never fell in price. Obviously, that's not a guarantee, but it certainly is an encouraging statistic. A lot of people following a negative year forecast recency and say, well, we've got to see negativity continue, when in fact, instead of the market rising an average of 9%, as it did every year since World War II, gaining in price 71% of the time, following a down year, we were up 14.2% on average, rising in price more than 80% of the time, and then add Jeff Hirsch's January barometer indicator, so a positive January following a down year the market was higher 21% and the its batting average its frequency of advance was 92%. So more and more it seems that with so many people remaining fairly bearish about the market and a lot of encouraging historical comparisons, you know, I would I would tend to say that you certainly wouldn't want to be short this market. Yeah,
1: and actually that that's an important area to branch off of. But I, I do think it's worth noting, the audience, that, that point about you know, every time you're above 6% inflation, you have a recessionary period afterwards, or during. The sample size on that is not very large, <laughs> right? There's not that many examples in history we can point to to even have any
2: confidence, I think, in that in that argument. Right. Well, we've only had 13 bear markets. This is the 14th bear market, but we just don't know how deep it's going to be. And nine of those 13 ended up being recessions and bear markets so you're absolutely correct a statistician would say that that's not statistically significant
1: so let, let's let's go with that a little bit more because i think this is really um, actually quite important a markets don't for, don't follow normal distribution so it's hard to really have any confidence in you know the way that you would think from a statistics 101 type of mindset but when you do your own research, how do you think through those those dynamics in terms of sample size? Because that's gotta make it very challenging in practice to apply historical relationships to the here and now.
2: Well, that's true. Well, I guess what you know, you have to look at some of those historical considerations You share them, but at the same time, you indicate the number of observations, so one can decide whether they want to embrace them as something that is statistically significant. But I think what it also says is the market does tend to follow patterns. It follows cycles. These should not be ignored. And that even though today is very different from the way the market was traded 20, 30, 40 years ago, the one thing that has remained consistent is human emotion. And so the human interaction involvement with the market, I think, will continue to allow history, if not to repeat, then certainly to rhyme. But at the same time, I acknowledge that like the singer of the national anthem, sometimes it forgets the words. So I overlay history with fundamentals. I also overlay it with some technicals. And you know, that I think helps me to decide whether the direction, the path that I am recommending to investors is likely to be the correct one.
1: So I, I often use that line that path matters more than prediction, right? In the way markets play out. It's not about the endpoints, it's about how you get between you know the dance in between the endpoints that results in people either taking the right or wrong actions. Let's talk about volatility from your historical Studies, I assume you can still have some pretty high volatility pulses in pre election years, so how do you think about volatility in a year like this when you do still have a lot of you know unknown unknowns out there
2: Oh, absolutely, and that 's why the old saying was that bull markets take the stairs, but bear markets take the elevator. I guess you can update that to bull markets take the escalator and bear markets take the elevator because going back to World War II, whenever we have been in a bull market, only 15% of those days experienced 1% moves. However, if we were in a bear market environment where we were down by 20% or more, well, then we actually ended up with an average of 44% of the days being 1% moves. So volatility really sort of follows fear, that if there is fear of losses, uh, et cetera, of making the wrong step, then that's what tends to increase the volatility. And then because investors engage in FOMO, not only on the way up, but also on the way down, the fear of missing out on a recovery is something that is of concern. So that's why a lot of times we end up with many, many more days of 1% moves in a bear market because they're not sure when the turn is going to take place. And then when it ends up being more of a bear market rally, Then they sort of uh, beat themselves up for having been sucked into it, and then they sell as well. So that tends to uh, exaggerate the kind of volatility moves.
1: and Actually, I think that's that's an important um, point to to hit on, which is that people tend to think of bull markets and bear markets more in terms of direction. I I myself tend to view it more in terms of volatility because, as you noted, one of the characteristics of bear markets – are those you know, big up, big down type of seesaw moves, which is why shorting, even in bear markets, despite last year, tends to be notoriously difficult.
2: Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Yeah. And there's it's not as if FASB has a exact definition of what a bear market, what a bull market is. I mean, in general, a bear market is a decline of 20%. A bull market is an advance of 20% off of that prior bear market low, But I like to add the caveat of over a period of at least six months, because go back to 2008, the market bottomed on November 20th. But then by January 6th, we were up 25%, only to then turn around fall 27% and bottom out on March 9th of 2009. So Did we have a bear market followed by a very short bull market followed by a very short bear market? Because we then rose by 20% again by the end of June of 2009. And even if you had purchased at the very top of 2009, the early part, meaning you bought on January 6th, you would have been higher by 20% for the full year. So... For me, I look at the twenty percent advance off of the bear market bottom, but a new bottom cannot be established within twelve uh, within six months. Otherwise, it was st- simply a continuation of the prior bear. Now,
1: market. I love that point about about definitions. It's always driven me crazy when you hear the media saying the Nasdaq uh, just entered a new bull market because it already went up twenty percent. It's like, no, you've been in a bull market. <laughs> Right. You didn't enter bull market right. Right? just because you're up 20 percent. You've been in it in the advance. But but and even if you're up 19.99 percent, that doesn't mean it's a bull market. You know, it's like these these things. I often find people get tripped up on these terms, which I would argue are largely just semantics. It's more about do conditions favor lower higher volatility? Do conditions favor risk seeking or risk averse behavior? I think that's more the mindset most investors
2: should, should focus on. Well, and I think that yeah, and I think that the reason that investors want to know is this a pullback? Is this a correction? Is this a bear market? Is because humans by nature uh, are compartmentalizers they can better understand something if they put it into a compartment. Also, if something falls by 10%, well, it only has to rise by 11% to get back to break even. If it falls by 20%, it takes 24% to get back to break even. But if you have a mega meltdown bear market of 50%, it'll take 100% to get back to break even. So I I think a, a lot of the reasons why individuals try to define what is a correction what is a bear market is the amount of time required to get back to break even
1: do you think that investors are uh, let's call the modern investors, more irrational or more emotional than investors of old uh, you know it seems like we're in an environment where short termism has never been as short as it is now and emotions get accentuated by social media you've got the advent of zero dt and all this kind of manic trading which you can argue is very much emotional. What are your thoughts on sort of the idea that logic has become – taken more of a backseat on average?
2: Well, I can't really say that that uh, today we are really bad as investors, but a long time ago we were really good. I mean that's what the whole story about either Bernard Baruch or Joseph Kennedy getting stock tips from their shoeshine person indicated that the lowest common denominator had been met in the 1929 period. I think that uh, a lot of investors just don't do their their homework and listen to what other people say. And you know, how many times have a person whose stock hit a 52-week high are disappointed? Well, none of them. So they're going to brag about those stocks to their friends who might not do the research before buying it. But I think, as you were saying, it could end up being compounded because they have computers with which to make these kind of intraday movements. When we just had mutual funds, you could only make changes at the end of the day. And a lot of companies said, well, we're only going to allow you X number of trades per month with a mutual fund. So in a sense, they were restricted from becoming their portfolio's worst enemy. So I also think that because of the financial media that is out there, I mean, financial media is not information, it's entertainment. And when you realize that adrenaline enhances memory retention and that's why we recall where we were when tragic events occurred essentially financial media is trying to elevate adrenaline on a daily basis i mean when you listen to what they're saying they're basically trying to say the world is coming to an end at midnight tune in tomorrow to see if it really did you know cuz they have to be able to offer eyeballs in order to make the what they charge advertisers Valid, so it's really entertainment it's not information, and when you get things that are being pounded upon in that financial media, then I think that elevates the anxiety the adrenaline that these investors have to endure
1: yeah, and those tend to be actually the uh the best time to buy so i I put out a tweet June sixteenth which was you can argue the lower one of the first low right before we debated about june or october but it was june 16th i have a tweet Mm -hmm. where i literally caught cnbc on the very bottom left that said markets in turmoil that day and that was when things essentially bottomed and listen i mean i've used that line before in october i put a dramatic sounding tweet saying the end of the world is at hand that's why stocks are about to have a melt up now at that time i actually did believe that we were actually in a pretty high risk period which is why you couldn't bet on it the way that yields were rising the speed with which the bond market was selling off in October, if that were to have persisted, I made the argument that that would have meant in a month you would have had like twenty percent mortgage rates. Just the the card the volatility in the bond market was so extreme that you almost had to bet that it would stop because it wouldn't matter otherwise, and that was enough to push stocks higher. Let's talk about bonds. A lot of people are still of the mindset that yields will keep rising. What does some of the historical analysis suggest? As far as how yields could play out this year?
2: Well, our expectation is that we'll probably end up seeing the 10 year yield average around 3.95 for the rest of this year. I mean, that's what our economists are projecting, but obviously they are as data dependent as the Fed is. But I think, you know, the real question is from an investor's perspective gee, let's go back in time and, and look at a 60 40 portfolio or at least a balanced portfolio. So I looked at the Fidelity balanced portfolio because it it had in the Capital IQ database pretty long history. And whenever it was down in one year, yes, like the stock market itself, it tended to recover quite nicely in the subsequent year. The average compound annual growth rate was about 5% for this balanced fund since the late 1980s. Yet the average return following a down year was more than 13%. So you had, again, a, a pretty nice recovery the year after. And also, what we found is that if there were times when you were down more than twice in a two-year period, or you were down twice in a two-year period, it was because of the equity side, not necessarily the bond side. So I I think about what happened in 1994. We had seven rate increases actually from early 74 to early, uh, I'm sorry, 94 to 95. Yet bonds were up, what, 18% in 1995. So traditionally, when you have bonds get pounded one year, they tend to respond very nicely the year after.
1: Yeah, I, I, it's also worth noting that, especially when it comes to long duration treasuries, it's not like the drawdown started last year. It was actually August of 2020 when, you know, on the long end yields started rising. I, I did that, that stat last year, but if you look at the peak to trough decline in long duration treasuries, the, the performance loss was around 40%. Which ranks it among the, is I think, it's the fifth largest decline for the stock market, <laughs> going back to the twenties. Right. Yes, so it, it, right. It, it, this is why it's always it's just interesting to me. It's like everyone is still very bearish on bonds, but we've had something not only historic but something that I just don't see how that can persist without you know a system reset, which again means you can't bet on it.
2: True, but I, I think that you know investors who are looking to take advantage of it, you know, have the benefit today of laddering portfolios. They can do so with the bonds themselves. They can do so with ETFs. So there are a lot more investment instruments available to investors today, I think, to really develop a solid portfolio.
1: Let's go to some of the audience. Again, if anybody wants to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left microquest button. Let's go to... We'll
3: be back after a quick break.
1: Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit Live and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now back to our discussion
2: well i'm have to go with the what our economists are projecting sorry but i let them do most of the uh, the bond forecasting but when we are are looking at a projection here in the us of the 10 year yield being 395 as i had mentioned going out into uh, the early part of 2024 I also see that you know maybe we end up challenging, again, the, the 4% level. So toward the end of this year, actually, uh, I see that they have updated their numbers to 4.10, is where they see the ending rate in fourth quarter of this year, but then coming back down to 4.05 in the first quarter of 2024. We're still expecting the Fed to raise interest rates three more times this year. So in the March, the May, and the June meeting, we're expecting a terminal rate of 5.375. But because we have been listening to the Fed, we don't think that they're going to be cutting rates anytime soon, even though historically, the Fed has cut interest rates an average of nine months after the last rate increase our belief is that they're likely to continue with the higher rates into 2024 because, as they've been saying, they don't want to make the same mistakes that they did in the 1970s.
1: By by the way, that that time frame, so that's an interesting uh, stat. I, I, I myself didn't know, but that sounds like, depending upon where they pause, if they pause this year, that sounds like that would coincide with when a lot of corporate loans are set to roll over next year right so uh, these charts have been going around twitter for a while and i would make this point too that a lot of loans are set to roll over corporate loans are set to roll over in 2024 2025 which could be a problem because if you have this kind of debt refinancing tsunami that's coming post-covid they're going to roll over into higher rates which the fed may need to get ahead of in case these you know quote zombie companies can't can't survive on the higher cost of capital.
2: Yeah, true. Being uh, being able to um, afford their debt, to roll over that debt, is a concern. I know that um, Irving Fisher, the economist who in September of 1929 said that, I feel that we have hit a permanent plateau, only to be surprised a month later. He did do a study in the 1930s saying, why did so many companies go out of business? And it was because of the debt levels that they had. And so they actually had to reduce their cost, uh, reduce the price of their products to sell as much as they could to help pay off that debt, which then tended to exacerbate the disinflationary and then deflationary environment that we found ourselves in. That sounds like a very interesting study, not something that I have done. But certainly, cash flow is obviously a very, very important aspect of an analysis. I do know that PACER has several ETFs that focuses on cash flow, their cash cow series, whether it's the global cows, as well as the small cap cows, which they call the calves. But I have not done that kind of analysis. So I can't Confirm, uh, but you know my gut feel would say that yeah, it's it's the companies with the the higher cash flow, the the better ability to pay their their dividends, um, you know, as well as to be able to handle tough times. Should we eventually fall into a recession, you know, those are the companies that are likely to hold up the best. So I think you're definitely onto something. Okay, coming because I, I believe that we are coming out of this bear market. It's just taking time for investors to acknowledge such that I, I would tend to say that, you know, obviously, depending on what your time horizon risk tolerance is, et cetera, I think we have better opportunities in the mid and small cap space. Just looking at valuations right now, the SP mid cap 400 is trading at a 12% discount to its long-term forward 12-month pe the s&p small cap 600 is paying trading at a 19% discount interesting is that the s&p emerging markets are trading at a 19% premium so a lot of investors have been moving into these international areas developed international trading at about a 3% discount so you know i would tend to say that we're probably going to experience a bit more headwind from higher interest rates here in the US, likely to put additional upside pressure on the the value of the dollar. Our expectation is that we probably could see that the dollar increase by about 2% in 2023, on top of the 10% that we saw in 2022. So, you know, maybe it doesn't drive substantially higher, but I think it could end up remaining fairly elevated. So I would say a good hefty exposure to US equities. The S&P right now is, is trading at a, a PE ratio right now that is oh about 8% premium to its longer-term average. So I think the better opportunities are in mid-caps and small-caps. And I think that if you did not put money into the emerging markets last year, they could be a bit challenging so far this year. In terms of fixed income, as Michael and I were just chatting, I think that there is some potential appreciation because we do think the Fed will stop its rate tightening program by mid-year, but likely to see those rates remain elevated for a while. But I think that with so many people expecting the 10-year yield to to skyrocket well into the 4% area, I think it's probably not something we're going to see.
1: Let me just uh, reset the room real quick for the remaining minutes here. Everybody, please make sure you follow Sam Stovall, who, as you can tell, is a uh, he's a wealth of knowledge. And uh, honestly, Sam, if you haven't been on Jeopardy before, you should be giving
2: that You throw out, it's phenomenal. Well, to be honest, we did elevate our – terminal rate after the retail sales number of January, after the CPI, PPI numbers, etc. And we brought it out to the end of June. We initially thought that the Fed would stop at the end of March. So I think we are as data dependent as the Fed and, and everybody else. So while we think it's a a possibility. We don't. We think that the greatest probability is that the the Fed stops raising rates at the end of June. You know, certainly there there is the possibility that it does go up to six percent. I mean, uh, Neil Kashkari was saying that he he thought that the Fed rates would go beyond that. So I, I think that the the dot plots that we're going to be monitoring and listening to uh, at the end of the uh, upcoming meetings will give us a better clue. But right now, I guess if we have to make a forecast, right now, ours is that they'll stop by mid-year because they're aiming at a target that's below the horizon. And I don't think that they want to overshoot. I don't think that the Fed wants to throw us into another great recession. And so it really has to balance to ensure that it is certainly combating inflation, but it beats it down enough, but not too much, that causes us to to fall into a very sharp recession. Well, the PCE on a year-over-year basis, we see ending this year at about 3.4%, but then first quarter of 2024 to be at 27 So the direction, it, it's in the right direction, meaning it is continuing to take the stairs down. It, unfortunately, the PCE hiccuped last quarter month, whereas the CPI and PPI, they also continue to fall on a year-over-year basis, but by less than I think Wall Street was hoping and anticipating. So I think that the Fed could end up stopping raising rates before hitting the 2%, because it realizes that a lot of the rates that uh, it, 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 the rate hikes that it's already engineered won't really be felt until sometime in 2024. So I think that they want to take sort of a wait-and-see attitude to see if the, the stair-step downward uh, is continuing. Well, um again i would i would tend to say that um, you guys are a lot smarter than i am when it comes to looking at individual financial statements uh, i like to call myself a stock market storyteller who looks at who you know looks at seasonality momentum valuation and so forth but and i leave the other stuff to our analysts but I think it's a good example of how, really, probably the the worst fundamental figure you can look at is price to earnings ratios because they are the most easily fudgeable, as O'Shaughnessy said in his book. Even price to book value is something that can be fudged, whereas the price to sales was was a uh, a harder metric to uh, to fool investors with. So, right. Right. you know, I think it's almost like when investors ask me, "Well, Sam." what will companies do with their money? Will they acquire other companies? Will they buy back the shares? Will they raise the dividend? And my answer is yes. They'll do all of those things because whatever their their shareholders want to have done, they will engage in. They'll do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And obviously, companies do a very good job of managing expectations. I mean, so much so that if we look at the S&P 500 earnings, This will be the first quarter since 2009 in which the actual results did not exceed expectations. And actually, it'll only be the second time in the last 55 quarters in which actual results did not exceed end of quarter estimates. So, management does a very good job of managing expectations and whatever they can do a penny here, a penny there to. Make themselves look as if they beat expectations is essentially something that they will continue to do, if not illegal.
1: You know, one thing um, obviously that gets you to um, two percent inflation uh, would be would be a credit event. Would be if you have some kind of deflationary shock, which a credit event uh, would be. I've been tweeting out all throughout last month, March, 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 and people think I'm saying that March is going to be a credit event. Um, Just I think March, you know, toward the end of the month could be high volatility, but. You still might have sort of a, a credit event out there at some point uh, later this year. I'm curious to hear your thoughts, uh, Sam, on the idea that bear markets end with a bang because this really didn't end with a bang if it ended. And you know, one way to end this bear market with a bang would be you know, spreads blowing out.
2: No, you're you're absolutely right. That's the one thing that makes me feel as if maybe this bear market is not over is because we did not have that traditional spike. I've been looking at volatility before the VIX came out. uh, And the way I do that is I look at the high-low differential on a daily basis, and then I plot it out on a rolling 15-day basis. And historically, it has needed to exceed the 3% level, meaning that the average daily volatility has exceeded 3%. Over a 15 day period, that usually has ended up being like a, uh, you know, this emotional spike that signals that we are getting close to the end of this bear market. You know, you can get this number very easily by downloading the data off of Yahoo or whatever and looking then at, you know, putting in one and two standard deviations from the mean. These bear market. Ending spikes in volatility have all been above two standard deviations, or you know, a majority of them. But obviously, the the shallower the bear market, the lower the ultimate um, volatility spike ends up being. Uh, but right now, I would tend to say that if this is all we got, I'd be listening to Peggy Lee singing, "Is that all there is?" and saying that we got off pretty easily. And that maybe something else would be more challenging later on. But at the same time, you know, prices lead fundamentals. I don't, what do they say? Don't be wrong for too long. If the market uh, continues to work its way higher, we continue to see relative strength rotation out of the defensive groups into the cyclical groups, then this is something that I would go with. And who knows whether we do end up with a, a, credit situation, as Michael, uh, as you're saying, that's certainly a possibility. And that's something that we have to you know, keep our finger on the pulse of the market through volatility to see if that does end up being that uh, ultimate bottom maker. Let's go back to your point about...
3: We'll be back after a quick break.
1: mid caps and small caps for a moment here how much of that that argument is around just the sector compositions of uh, small cap and mid cap indices and strategies i mean large cap is tech right so if tech has ceded its leadership then it makes sense to anyway allocate to small and mid because there's less tech as part of the overall averages
2: no that's a very good point tech is about 20 7.5% of large caps 12.7 of mid caps and 13.6 of small caps. Yes, I am reading something that's not from memory. And so you know, it depends on you know what sectors happen to be in favor, out of favor, etc. and areas where we have greater exposure is for the mid and small caps is in the consumer discretionary category, 10.5% on large caps, 14.5% and 13.5% for mid and small caps. So if we see continued challenges and struggling in communication services, which is dominated by large cap companies, ditto for technology, yet we have substantially more in consumer discretionary in materials and other areas like that then yeah the composition can certainly play a a role in how these uh, groups outperform also in a rising interest rate environment you know investors are looking for growth and if they feel that they can get more growth from the mids and the small caps then that's where they're going to gravitate especially if they feel that we are closer to the end of a rate tightening cycle than to the beginning or the middle interesting
1: historical analysis when it comes to sectors that have, like, really outsized relative performance. And really, in this case, I'm talking about energy, right, last year. What what does sort of history suggest when you have a particular sector really run away from everything else? Is it sort of the start of a a multi-year period of leadership? Is it, you know, all then pulled forward? What, What does history say?
2: Well, I like to say that the right answer to most financial questions is, that depends. When you look to history, you know, this, the uh, energy stocks did exceptionally well, not only last year, but also the year before. Energy stocks were up, what, 59% last year? So they did exceptionally well, but they were also the leading sector the year before. But that's because they were underperformers for a solid, what, five years at least. And so right now, believe it or not, the SP. 500 energy sector is trading at a 45% discount to its long-term average forward PE. So still, one might say that that they look fairly attractive. What I have found is that following down years, that there is a rotation from first to worst what i mean is that in a down year traditionally investors will hide out in the low beta areas like consumer staples like healthcare like utilities but in the year after <clears throat> they tend to gravitate toward those sectors that were beaten up the most i've also found that you know the january barometer can be a good indication of the coming 12 month period not only for The market, but for sectors themselves. And in both cases, you had technology, consumer discretionary among those groups beaten up the most, uh, and therefore likely to be outperformers in 2023. So what typically happens is if you make too much money one year, investors say, you know what, Bulls get rich, bears get rich, but pigs get slaughtered, so I'm going to take some profits. And so traditionally, uh, a group that is too has too outsized of a gain does end up stalling as investors just sort of assume that the uh, the music will soon stop. So let's gravitate toward some other area that looks more attractively valued that we can Invest in, you know, if not for the long term, then at least for the intermediate term.
1: Yeah, and actually, that's a, that's a good segue to valuations in general for different sectors. So, and I'm with you on the defensive basket of of utilities, staples, healthcare. I mean, usually, when they outperform, you'll see long duration treasuries do well. Except last year was a notable exception to that. Those areas are still, I, I, last I checked, fairly overvalued relative to their own history. Though, um, is there is there sort of a big Unusual spread differential in valuations across defensive versus cyclical, given the way that last year played out?
2: Right now, consumer staples are trading at uh, an 11% premium to its own historical PE ratio. And this is only going back to 2000 based on S&P Capital IQ consensus data. So staples are at an 11% premium, utilities at a 14% premium. Most of the other groups are at single... Digit premiums, except for communication services and financials, which are single percent discounts, so I'm not really seeing things that just jump out at me except as I mentioned regarding energy so here, I guess the question is you know maybe it's one of those situations where energy has come in because it it did so well over the last couple of years, but also because if we do end up with a recession then we're likely to see a reduced demand for energy. However, we are seeing China reopen, and that's why the energy and materials groups were the best performers of the last week. Coal stocks were up 20% last week alone, but you had steel, aluminum, copper, as well as some of the oil and gas areas do exceptionally well as investors are now rotating back into those groups that, that might end up benefiting from an increase in demand from, from China. So, you know, that, that is an area that we're just seeing, you know, investors just rotating back and forth, looking for those opportunities.
1: You'd mentioned at the uh, start of the conversation, Oshana I what works on Wall Street. What doesn't work anymore? I often find that knowing what not to track or what not to uh, analyze is probably more important than knowing what to analyze. Okay.
2: True, well, I think what does work, but it relates to what not to do, is momentum. Um, that looking at, you know, in his book he talked about, you know, uh, let your winners ride, but cut your losers short. What I do very simply is I monitor a rolling forty-week or two hundred-day percent change for the sectors within the S and P five hundred, as well as midcap, small cap, Canada, Europe, and, and Asia Pacific just to see like, well, where is the strength? Where is the weakness? When you look at a 10-year compound annual growth rate, you're looking at numbers like for any one of these indices. The high watermark is a gain of 2.9% for the small caps. For the worst performing sectors, 9.4% for the benchmark itself. But for monthly rotation into the top four sectors, you got 10.8%. So ten eight for the best performing sectors nine four for the market, but only two point nine for the underperformers. That basically, you know, they're, if they're underperformers, they're underperformers for a reason. They have a lot of overhead resistance. So whenever a stock gets back to a price where somebody bought into it, they're going to say, "I want to dump this dog so that I can move on to something else." So. Something you you don't want to try to do is really to buck the trend. And if the trend is downward, then you respect that. Today, in the the journal section of the Wall Street Journal, they talked about using valuations, that if the P.E. on the S&P was above 20, then you sold down to a 30% exposure to equities if you were within a pe of 20 to 12 then you were 50-50 stocks and bonds if you were at 12 or lower then you were 70% stocks and what they said was that this doesn't work anymore it was something that had worked for a while but you know the uh, investors are looking at so much more than pe ratios so, if you are looking from a fundamental perspective, you are much better off looking at cash flow, as one of your earlier guests was talking about uh looking at price to sales, but definitely not making rotational decisions based on a price to earnings ratio it's at the index level good question okay. so what did i what do I do is I have the eleven sectors for the The S and P, so large, mid, small, Canada, Europe, Asia. To get an idea, as you know, is it fairly consistent when we're looking at strength across the globe? And the answer is uh, yes. Consumer discretionary is positive for all of the regions. Industrials is positive for all of the regions. Conversely, communication services is negative. We're looking at utilities that are negative across the board, and you know, so trying to get sort of a feel as to where, you know, is it regional specific, or is it something that is, is global? In James O'Shaughnessy's book, he talks about momentum from a rolling 12-month perspective. And I produce a, a ranking for all of the sectors and sub-industries in the S&P 1500 on our market scope Advisor website. So like our Our stars ranking, five is best, one is worst. I do a normal distribution for the sub-industries where the top 10% are a five, the next 20% are a four, middle 40% are a three, next 20% are a two, and a bottom 10% are a one. And that still seems to work quite nicely, I have an industry momentum portfolio that is on our market scope advisor platform. And what I do is I select the stock to serve as a proxy for that sub-industry that enters the portfolio. And last year, it did quite nicely. The portfolio itself was up 5.5% versus the market itself being in negative territory. No, I'm not skipping the previous month. And I'm really just doing it every Friday, I reassess this. So it's, it's a really a true 40 week, just so that it gives me something to write about over the weekend, since I have to publish Monday morning, as well as Wednesday afternoon. And then I also write the lead for our flagship newsletter, The Outlook. So I always try to set myself up to be able to benefit from some of the data uh, whenever it's time to write my articles. I learn as much from you guys as you guys uh, learn from me. So thank you. Sam, what's the best way people can track your work? Well, so on Twitter, it's at Stovall, C-F-R-A. And Stovall is S-T-O-V-A-L-L. Let's see. uh, If you go to CFRAResearch.com, you can get a free two-week trial to our MarketScope Advisor platform. But also, if you're a, a client of, Schwab, you're a client of Fidelity, Morgan Stanley, you get a lot of the CFRA research already. And if you do use it through those platforms, please let them know that you use it, because then they'll continue to, to subscribe. But, and then lastly, if you happen to be near a large library, let's say a, a, a county library, they subscribe to the Outlook. They might subscribe to our MarketScope Advisor platform. So you could already be paying for it through your taxes. What's a library? <laughs> Been a while since uh, I heard that word.
1: Anyway, thank everybody for joining. Please make sure you follow Sam Stovall. And everybody, if I don't see you, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Sam.
3: The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.